University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. Under orders from the Secretary of Defense, women can now try out for all combat jobs in all services. We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation. Don't ask, don't tell is history, but there's still plenty to talk about. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. Today, we're excited to bring you another discussion with writer Phil Cly. Hello. Hey, Phil, how are you? Good, how are you? We're good, we're good. Hey, good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you. Yeah. Some of you may remember Phil from our season one episode on America's moral contract with its military. But for those that don't, Phil is a former Marine who deployed to Iraq from 2007 to 2008 as a public affairs officer. Upon returning home, he began writing about his war experience, earning critical acclaim. In 2014, Phil won the National Book Award for his book, Redeployment. Before we get into the interview, we should note any of the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. And this episode does contain explicit language and discussion of suicide. Last November, Phil published a piece in the New York Times entitled, The Soldiers We Leave Behind. In it, Phil writes about the plight of Iraqi nationals who worked as translators for the U.S. military and who are now seeking special immigrant visas to the United States. The Special Immigrant Visa Program was enacted by Congress in 2006 to enable certain Iraqi and Afghan people who had worked on behalf of the U.S. government, usually as translators or interpreters, in our wars overseas. As Phil describes it, the program's purpose was, quote, to prove that America was a trustworthy partner in the complex wars we're currently fighting. Phil writes that interpreters are essential links between American soldiers and the local troops they train, the neighborhoods they patrol, and the intelligence sources they depend on. And unfortunately, thousands of people who served alongside our military in Iraq and Afghanistan still languish in the immense backlog, unable to be admitted to the U.S. for various administrative and political reasons. Meanwhile, many of them live in fear forced to keep their backgrounds as former translators secret even from their closest family and friends. But more on that later. We began this discussion with a different story, which Phil also tells in his essay, about a man who lived and died almost a hundred years ago. His name was Charles White Whittlesey. The fact that, you know, we have drastically slow walked the ability of people who literally serve in combat with U.S. forces uh, to come to the United States, despite the fact that their lives are, 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 are under threat, seems tied into a kind of broader history, especially one that emerges during wartime, of particular kind of nativist strands of American identity that are, that are sort of ugly and, and um, rear their head and, and seem sort of diametrically opposed to the best of what, what we have to offer as a country. That led me to this story of Charles White Whittlesey, Charles Whittlesey was an army officer who led soldiers in the bloody Meuse-Argonne offensive in World War I. 
He served with the Melting Pot Division, a group of soldiers largely comprised of immigrant Americans who were still trying to earn full recognition as citizens back home. Whittlesey saw the immense sacrifice of these men during the war, only to later see them discriminated against and abused upon their return. Whittlesey goes over with, you know, this battalion in the Melting Pot Division, right? And he is part of this push in the in the Meuse-Argonne uh, front. And they're sort of pushing ahead, pushing ahead. The American troops are relatively inexperienced, uh, and their flanks are getting more and more exposed. He actually raises concerns about this and is told that his concerns are nonsense. And then during one of these pushes, his unit goes far ahead. They get encircled by the more experienced Germans. And then they're just in this little pocket. They don't have good cover. Um, they have to sort of crawl through an area where they're exposed to fire in order to even get water. They run out of supplies. The Germans continually try and overrun their position. He, you know, they're literally stripping bandages from the dead to apply to the freshly wounded um, because they have, you know, no more bandages left. Whittlesey kind of keeps keeps calm keeps refusing German demands for surrender, and he holds out for five days. He goes in with 554 men, and by the time friendly units reach him, 360 of those are either dead, missing, or injured. And they become instant heroes, right? It's just this amazing story of endurance. And so they, they bring him in on, like, kind of publicity tours right so like two months after he has this intensely harrowing experience he's at the armory in new york introduced you know as like the epitome of a christian soldier by the secretary of the treasury to try and convince people to buy war bonds uh and he gives a speech to the crowd because he's this kind of you know believer in sort of universal values and opposed to the kind of divisions between men uh where he, he tells the crowd you know you know, our troops aren't going to come back hating Germans. In fact, you know, if they saw the Kaiser on the side of the road, they might share a cigarette with one of them, you know, with him. Uh, and the, the newspaper accounts are just like, silence greeted this portion of the address, right? And his men, uh, once he's back, are increasingly experiencing, you know, discrimination, right? Because they are the... Um, you know, they're the melting pot battalion. There, there are a bunch of immigrant groups that are not wanted. Uh, there have already been sort of restrictionist uh, immigration laws that have been put into place, uh, specifically designed to try and limit people from the kinds of countries that his men came over with, right? And you know, he actually quickly tries to restrain his public appearances. He does speak out in favor of the the League of Nations. There's a um, event organized by uh, Jewish groups to protest anti-Semitism, where they're trying to sort of talk about the fact that you know Jews served America uh, honorably in the Great War, and so he you know does go to that and he says you know if I'm ever pessimistic of the future of this country, I would always feel assured that I could go to the crowded quarters of the city and pick out Hershkowitz, Seriglio, and O'Brien, and know that in them I could find the kind of men that were needed, right? Uh, he helps, like, the Polish stowaway cousin of one of his soldiers avoid deportation. Uh, and then he's invited to the uh, burial of the unknown soldier. And this is a corpse that is so ravaged by war that's totally unrecognizable. And it gets this in- incredibly lavish burial. It's, you know, 
brought overseas under escort. The um, it's it's laid out in state. It's given every award you could possibly give um, uh, a, a soldier pos- uh, posthumously. Tens of thousands of Americans come see it and uh, come pay their respects in the Capitol building. There's this procession down the National Mall with the president, the former president and Congress and the Supreme Court and the Metropolitan Opera has sent a quartet singing psalms about how this guy died just like Christ. And Whittlesey is one of the pallbearers because they have Medal of Honor recipients as the pallbearers. And so he's picked and he turns to a friend uh, and he says, um, I should not have come here. I shall have nightmares tonight and hear the wounded screaming once again. And then after that um, event, which, uh, you know, is uh, November 11th, uh, 1921, which is the same year of uh, sort of the Emergency Quota Act, which is kind of like a landmark uh, act in terms of immigration restrictionism. He organizes everything, you know, in his life. He meets with friends draws up a new will, you know, arranges his legal cases with instructions as to, you know, how to deal with them, boards the ship for Havana, and then jumps from the deck and disappears beneath the waves. When people, uh, and, you know, it's sort of telling, I think, that after the internment of this lavish internment of, of the burial of the unknown soldier, as uh, Jonathan Eppel points out, you know, he kills him himself in a way that almost seems designed to prevent his body from being treated the same way because it'll never be recovered and every once in a while somebody will write an article about Whittlesey and it's often described as um, a story of trauma or survivor's guilt but it also seems related to the kind of I think moral climate of the post-war era I mean I think you know and obviously some of those things are are present, but I don't think you can divorce how he was feeling at the time from the fact that sort of every hope that he had had for what kind of country America could be um, was being shredded in the post-war era in terms of uh, how America was behaving and, and how America was behaving even to his own veterans who didn't fit into the, the sort of image of an American veteran that, that, that people would like to see. So there's the ideals that sort of, that he was clearly deeply invested in that a lot of you know, the soldiers believed in were told they were fighting for versus a very kind of narrow, racist, um, nativist, resurgent American politics that is, has a very empty, honestly, notion of what Americanness is um, and sort of ugly and racialized version of what it is to be an American. Uh, it's It's hard not to look at the sort of desolation someone like Whittlesey was clearly going through and not see how deeply that must have affected him and, and, and probably affected a lot of veterans at the time. We'll be right back. Chicago, the windy city, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. This is Chicagoland. 
Soldiers from the World War I melting pot division were far from the only veterans to experience racial and ethnic discrimination, even violence, after their military service. According to a report by the Equal Justice Initiative, between 1877 and 1950, there were 4,075 lynchings directed toward black veterans. The report, titled Lynching in America, argues that, quote, no one was more at risk of experiencing violence and targeted racial terror than black veterans. In Phil's New York Times essay, he writes about, and I'm quoting here, Private Charles Lewis, arrested while in uniform, beaten by a mob, lynched and left swinging from a blood-soaked rope on December 15, 1918, little more than a month after the armistice. Wilbur Little, arrested for wearing his military uniform for too long, beaten to death in Blakely, Georgia. Bud Johnson, chained to a stake in Pace, Florida, was reported to have said, would that I had died in Germany rather than come back here and die by the hand of the people I was protecting, then burned alive. There's a long-standing tradition in American history of using military service as a vehicle to achieve recognition as a citizen, as a member of the Republic. But what the historical record shows is that white supremacists in America often terrorized and murdered black veterans, not in spite of their military service, but because of it. Of course, this topic deserves much more time and attention than we're giving it here. But we wanted to include Phil's perspective on the broader questions surrounding race, citizenship, and military service. So there are the rights of citizenship, about which you know we talk a lot, and then there are, but there are also the duties of citizenship, mm -hmm. right? And they're intertwined. And so, you know, there's there's no more sort of challenging duty, or certainly, well, there's there's no more there's no duty more universally recognized as being kind of uh, ultimate expression expression of patriotism and and, and and citizenship than service in war. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, a kind of long history of people fighting for rights and uh, using their service as a, as a claim on rights, right? So, I mean, this goes back to the beginning of the nation. So, um, you know, I think of, of during the Revolutionary War, some Black Americans serving uh, with the Revolutionary Army who are signing up with names like Freeman and Liberty, right, as their last names. Uh, during the Civil War, one congressman warned that allowing black soldiers would weaken white supremacy. He didn't want it to happen because he said, if black men were made, quote, the instrument by which your battles are fought, the means by which your victories are won, you must treat him as a victor is entitled to be treated, treated with all decent and becoming respect. Of course, to him, uh, treating black uh, Americans as with decent and becoming respect was, was unthinkable. And James Weldon Johnson, the civil rights leader in, in really brilliant writer, sort of made the same point during World War I because he, he said that African-Americans ought to fight because the moment he uh, ceases to perform the duties of citizenship, he abdicates the right to the claim of the, the right to claim the full rights of citizenship. And so that's on one hand, sort of the idea is that service in war creates a moral claim that, that is sort of universally recognizable. Um, the thing that I talk about in the piece a little bit is that precisely because it does this, it is also 
always been met with backlash, right? And and particularly after World War One, there was a soldier after soldier was was lynched, burned alive, chained to a post, and and, and riddled with bullets. It's a pretty, uh, you know, some of them for for things like wearing their uniform too long. Uh, there's a historian. Uh, who I referenced in the piece, Mickelson, who who talks about how there was a Southern newspaper where you would find in the same paper, right, the same edition of the same paper, the same day, an article titled something like, uh, you know, let's treat our soldiers with respect, and then another article justifying the lynching of a black soldier. And so the 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 fact that that service in war did make a claim on citizenship was precisely the reason that black soldiers were targeted. And that happened after World War II uh, as well. In, in, in uh, Bloods by Wallace Terry, which is a really remarkable book of Vietnam veterans, uh, black Vietnam veteran oral history. Uh, Sergeant Major Edgar Huff was the first black Sergeant Major Marine Corps. Tells a story from his youth about uh, the Ku Klux Klan coming. And he says at the end of the chapter, Whenever the Ku Kluxers would come, I would be terrified. It was the damnedest thing. And I thought about that many times when I was overseas and I had those beautiful machine guns. I would just wish to hell I had something like that back in Alabama when those son of bitches came through there. I would have laid them out like I did those damn Kongs the same way. I just don't see how black people survived down there in those days. I just don't see it. And so the, and I think there's, there's a kind of, there's a claim on citizenship. I think a, a political consciousness that sometimes comes along with that. Uh, but then also, uh, precisely because there is that claim on citizenship, there's there's a often a, a, in American history there's been a really vicious um, and nasty counterattack. That brings us to the stories of Ali and Ted, two Iraqis who served as translators with the U.S. military, and were promised visas to the U.S. as part of the special immigrant visa program. Ali was brought to the U.S., became a naturalized citizen in 2009 and then joined the U.S. Army and deployed again to the Middle East. Ted, on the other hand, is still waiting. You know, it it was interesting talking to these guys because, so the piece sort of talks about two two guys who served as interpreters with U.S. forces. And the first one is a guy named Ali who, you know, when he he was growing up, uh, he remembers being a kid in in the run-up to the Persian Gulf War and you know, there are all kinds of rumors swirling around that, you know, Americans are going to come in, they're going to torture people, they're going to commit massacres, et cetera, et cetera. And the family is getting nervous, you know, and, and, and Ali said, you know, he, he told me, you know, we didn't know anything. We we're living in a big prison. And his father sees that the family is, is kind of getting freaked out in, in, in the run up to the Persian Gulf War. And his father was a retired sergeant major in the Iraqi army. And he gathers the clan together and he says, hey, let me tell you something. Americans would never target civilians. So let's just enjoy the show. And then when, you know, obviously we didn't uh, invade Iraq during that time. But, you know, later we do when you know, 10 years later after sanctions and Ali has sort of, you know, helped his family uh, as best he could and through sort of difficult times. And his first contact with Americans is through these propaganda pamphlets that we sort of have planes drop over Iraq that say, you know, the coalition wishes no harm to the innocent Iraqi civilians. And he grabs one, he shows it to his father, because uh, it seemed to, you know, proved his father right 
uh, after, you know, 10 years. And, you know, Ali's father's like, yeah, I told you, man. You know, so that was his, I, I, I mean, he, he didn't know a lot about America, but that was one of the things that he felt, that America is the kind of country that doesn't do that, right? And then he signs up as an interpreter for the Americans. The Americans, you know, the rhetoric at the time was very Wilsonian in some ways, right? George Bush talking about these uh, universal kind of classical liberal values, you know, we're, we're going to go forward with complete confidence because freedom is the permanent hope of mankind, the hunger in dark places, the longing for the soul, right? And for Ali, serving with Americans also felt to him like serving his country, right? And then uh, he's in a lot of really intense experiences. He's at the Battle of Najaf, the first Battle of Najaf. He been assigned to units in really aggressive neighborhoods with a lot of IEDs. And then I, you know, opened the piece with one particular firefight where he was sort of really thought he was going to die. Um, and where he starts calling out, we're Americans, you know, and, and he ultimately would get one of these special immigrant visas when the program starts. Uh, and he come, you know, he's one of the first people to, to get one of these visas to come to America uh, because he served the Americans. Um, and he comes to America, he then joins the army and goes back to Iraq as an American soldier. Uh, and then, you know, on the other hand, there's uh, this guy, Ted, and Ted had fled to Syria at the beginning of the war because insurgents had seen him like talking to Americans and being friendly with Americans. He'd like learned about America watching TV, right? Like he'd seen like Seinfeld and Cheers, you know, he loved Ted Danson's character in Cheers. And so he, his interpreter name is Ted. He named himself after Ted Danson. He got threatened. He had to go to Syria for a while. Then, you know, came back when his family relocated to a different part of Iraq. And so he joined as an interpreter in 2007. It's very violent. And they put him with Marine Recon, which is like a pretty aggressive unit. He has no idea. He doesn't have a lot of training. He's quickly in his first firefight. And he tells me, you know, I just went cold, right? But like the people around him, you know, very brave. And he sort of that coldness kind of helped him operate in, in, in a firefight. And then later he actually gets a, a letter of commendation from the commander of recon battalion for his own courage in a firefight where he rushes through fire to uh, help sort of capture insurgent who wanted to surrender and then do a tactical interrogation that helped sort of shape the operations to end this uh, engagement that the platoon had gotten into. And so he ends up applying for one of these visas or kind of sort of a long bureaucratic process as to what happens. But eventually you have the rise of ISIS, which puts things on hold uh, because State Department personnel leave. It kind of creates this cascade effect where certain types of security clearances and things that, and checks that people have to go through, uh, they have an expiration date. And because the applications are being processed so slow, everybody's uh, sort of checks are, are expiring and then they have to do them again. And then you have the Muslim ban, which puts things on hold again. And now what you have is a situation where uh, under the Trump administration, where just admissions for all types of refugees, including interpreters, you know, they've just sort of gone off a cliff, right, in terms of the number of people that we're admitting. And so, you know, for Ted, like, you know, he still thinks of himself as like a Marine. And, you know, he told me that when he's in a difficult situation and he's, you know, he's living in an area where, 
Nobody knows that he had been interpreters. His career as an interpreter ended because of a, a back injury that he got on the job while working as a terp. You know, he had no medication, no real help. Uh, he was just, you know, on his back for months uh, afterwards. And he uh, is in an area with a lot of sort of bullish activity. Even his daughters don't know that he served as an interpreter because, you know, a slip of the tongue could, could get him killed. And, you know, he, he said, like, uh, you know, like when I'm in a bad situation, I measure myself wearing my vest and my helmet, surrounded by Marines, and I'll tell myself, hey, Ted, you're a Marine. You can get through these obstacles. And that's why I'm still hanging in there, man, you know. And, um, you know, for him, you know, he's like, you know, he told me, like, I want to live American dreams, to live free. Freedom and respect, that's the American dream. And I still think I'm a Marine. I'm honored to be a Marine. I wish I could work with the Marines one more time. And I don't know, it just, it kills me because he's the kind of guy that, that would be a real addition to the country, right? And who's, you know, served the country and put his life on the line for the country. And, you know, the guys that he served with, look, we're talking about guys of all political persuasions, right? And I only quote one in the piece, Ben Wormington. But, um, you know, I talked to a lot of the guys and they all loved him, you know, and a lot of them just expressed the same confusion. Like, why is he not here already? And Ben Wormington was like, you know, he comes over here, he can sleep on my couch. Like he, he can come into my home and sleep on my couch. And, you know, in terms of, you know, what America represents, um, you know, there's that sort of freedom and opportunity and respect that it is for, you know, for Ted. And, and Ben said something that I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, this Marine who served with Ted overseas, he said, uh, being an American is like being a Christian. It ain't easy. Nobody said it was going to be easy. But if you don't pursue those beliefs, then you don't believe. And um, it reminded me of, you know, Ralph Ellison in The Little Man at Shiaw Station talks about how America is this abstract futuristic project, right? It's this kind of goal on the horizon that we're always reaching reaching towards, Um where, uh, you know, we have these kind of like sacred words, like equality, democracy, freedom, that, you know, we're constantly eating and regurgitating and eating again, but that to be an American is to pursue that goal, right? And, you know, that means that a sort of vision of Americanness that is rooted too much, especially in like a racialized form of culture, is just, it's, it's not just stagnant and immoral, but it's actually, it's a sort of false nostalgia for something that never existed and is kind of counter to what America actually is. And, you know, towards the end of the piece, I talk about the fact that like, you know, America's home to 19% of the world's migrants, right, which is many times more than, than there are in any other country. And most, like a huge numbers of Americans say that immigration is a good thing, that openness to foreigners is essential to who we are as a nation. And so I talk about how like, you know, I sort of contrast that kind of nativist vision of American culture with a sort of sense of that like ever-present turbulence and change that, that being an American means embracing, right? That sort of melding of different peoples and new forms of cultural expression, uh, expression and, and, the, and, and having an attachment to that process on the nation that sort of helps it happen uh, and provides uh, a home for this 
unified diversity. Uh, and I sort of say in, in the piece and in that regard, American identity is like Heraclitus's river, which no one can step into twice, which is, is in some ways challenging, right? And it requires a certain amount of faith in the principles of American life to, to, to actually have the potential to be unifying, you know, the, the faith in the people that we have here. But it also requires a kind of rage at, at, at our constant failure to meet up to that, you know, meet that promise. Right. And it requires hard work to try and sort of move the ball forward, you know, and sort of the end of the piece, I just say it takes courage, um, which I think is just sort of factually true. And it's also one of the reasons why I think, you know, we would be lucky to have more guys like Ted here. And so I just, I guess just kind of connecting the dots, this idea of American nativism, this, this racialized charge or sentiment of Americanness is what kind of draws those parallels between the stories of the melting pot battalion and all those immigrant veterans who served, uh, the African-American veterans who served, that draws the parallel with the story of these Iraqi interpreters who mm-hmm. have served alongside service members and yet are are not being welcomed in. Yeah, and it's sort of, um, I mean, in some ways there, you know, what is happening to them is not just, to me, it seems not just, you know, uh, isolate moral betrayal, but indicative of the rise of a, a particular type of, of toxic notion of American Americanness and, and frankly, a kind of cowardice when it comes to, to the idea that our our values are actually universal and that they can be put into practice, you know? And I just, <laughs> I think we as a country deserve a lot better from, from our elected officials. And I think we need to do better. How can we do better? Is it just demanding more from our elected officials or is there something else? Well, you know, I think that, I mean, obviously there's sort of, there's political engagement, right, which is important, but um, I think that there's this specific issue of interpreters uh, that I talk about in the piece. You know, what I'm trying to get at is one instantiation of a kind of broader problem and a kind of constant struggle in American life, which is this sort of very natural and pernicious kind of human clannishness that also sort of intersects with, you know, America has a pretty robust intellectualized racism, I guess, and sort of, you know, a kind of cultural expression of, of, of different kinds of nativist sentiment that, that kind of emerged from our history that kind of periodically rear their head. And so, you know, I would say that there's, you know, sort of how one conducts himself as a as a citizen, as somebody who, you know, votes or writes letters to Congress or organizes or any of those uh, matters. But if uh, sort of openness and uh, diversity and also sort of kind of understanding of those as being patriotic values, right, is important to you, there are any number of ways that you can put those into practice that are not sort of overtly political or sort of um, involve interaction with elected officials. 
So there's a lot you can do, but it really just starts with getting yourself in the mindset of there's a lot more to being an American than just this nativist idea, that the meaning of America transcends so much more than that. Yeah, that, that if American if, if Americanness just means being born here, that doesn't mean much. Uh, and I think it can mean a lot more and should. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Tommy Latanzio, Bobby Maxwell, and Ashwarya Kumar. We record here at the Harris School of Public Policy. Special thanks to Phil Cly for joining us again, and please keep an eye out for his new novel, Missionaries, which will be released later this year. Thank You For Your Service is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and does not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. See you next time.